0: Hi, I'm Alan Higgins. Welcome to this seminar with Donica Kavanagh on the history and metaphysics of games, play, and fun. In part two, Donica juxtaposes the split between work and play as distinct domains of human character good and bad, valued versus vulgar, and the modern era's increasingly unashamed appreciation for leisure and the implications for a culture of fun and how the mechanics of games, gamification, and the dynamics of play are increasingly utilised in instrumental ways to create social experiences and deliver commercial functions.
1: Moving on to the 20th century in this, this brief run through the history of uh, work and play. So play begins to get into the conversation more in the 20th century. It really had been effectively excluded up to the 20th century and if it it appeared at all it was that it needed to be denounced. But particularly within sociology and philosophy uh, it began to appear but to be honest pretty marginally. So here you have George Simmel who was writing around 1900 uh, saw play as foundational to social relations. So for him, sociability is the play form of association. And like play, sociability in its pure form has no ulterior end, no content, no result outside itself. And we'll talk about this in a second, about the nature of, of play having nothing outside itself. George Mead, the child play acting is imagining herself as if she was another. And through doing so, builds an understanding of both self and other and the relationship between both. Again, again writing in the early 20th century. So, seeing play acting being actually quite important uh, in terms of understanding the other person, Irving Goffman, and later again, seeing organizations as institutionalized performance of actors playing dramatic world roles, roles. So, you get this kind of dramaturgical view of organizations as the organization as a theater, as a stage, and we have the idea of front stage. And so, he brought in in the language of of theater, said so that you. You go to before you go to work. You're at home putting on makeup, putting on your clothes, just like a, an actor. Then you go to work, and then you perform a role um, in, in in work uh, as a, as a as a theatrical person. And here's Huizinga, who I suppose wrote the seminal piece on play, where, where he really for the first the first person to really uh, uh, center uh, the human condition on play. So his key text which he wrote in, he's a Dutch, he wrote it in 1938, Homo Ludens, so man the player, a study of the play element of culture. So I think it was only translated in the 50s, but rather than seeing play as trivial, he argued that we should treat play seriously because it is elementary to the human and the animal condition. So so animals play and humans also play. And for him, war, religion, sports, the arts, uh, they're all forms of play. So he saw play everywhere. For him, play was was everywhere and p- play was foundational. It's something... Uh, so play cannot be denied, he said. You can deny, if you like, nearly all abstractions, justice, beauty, truth, um, uh, goodness, mind, God. You can des- deny seriousness, but you cannot deny play because you can see that children play and animals play. It's It's foundational. It's primordial. So... So his his analysis of play was really, really um, influential and central. Uh, He brought in this idea of the magic circle, so that when you have a game or you have a form of play, you enter into this world which is is surrounded by a a magic circle as such, and what goes on within the circle is is wholly contained within the circle. So the, the technical term is that it's autotelic. So you play the game of chess, and you play the game of chess. And that's all that matters. You're playing the game of chess. When you leave the game of chess and you play a game of tennis, you play, you're into a completely different magic circle. Or if you play poker, you can bluff in poker and people expect you to bluff in poker. And you have certain values and virtues in the game of poker. But you leave the game of poker and you're not expected to bluff uh, which in your relationships. So that's bad. While in bluffing in poker is good, but outside of poker, it's, it's bad. So there's a, it's a completely self-contained world, is, is the idea of, of uh, this magic circle. So that, and the technical term is autotelic. So for, for Husinga, a game is autotelic. It has no, and that means it has no purpose outside of the game. There's completely self-referential. Um, that's been a very strong theme within the game's literature. So what is a game? So this kind of brings you to, well, what is a game? And here's some of the definitions. To be a game, it must be fun. It's a system where players are engaged in an artificial concept, conflict defined by rules and penalties that result in optimistic outcomes for winners. And again, an activity from which fun is derived. So this this connection between fun and, uh, and games. So th- these are attempts to come up with a definition of a game. But I'm going to introduce Ludwig Wittgenstein, Uh, who was writing in the middle of the 20th century, a philosopher, Wittgenstein also sought to define a game. And he said, look, it's impossible to define a game. Don't be trying to define a game because there's so many different types of games around that even trying to define a game is a pointless activity. There's just too many different types of games. Like a game of chess, you have a game of hide and seek, you have a game of ring around the rosies, you've got um, got billiards, you've got a lottery, you've got lots of different... So how could you... They're, they're all very, very different. Uh, so de- de- trying to define a game is a waste of time. His analysis of games, and, and, and Wittgenstein has been a very influential philosopher, but he, he looked at games very carefully and he said, actually, languages operate the very same as games. And that the meaning of any word depends on its use in a particular language game. So the, the idea of a game, he he extended the idea of game to, to look at language as a game, as a form of game. And by the way, it's, I was just reading this morning a, a nice paper by Andre Spicer about bullshit, and he uses Wittgenstein's um, idea of language games to say that some language games are just basically bullshit games. That, and and it, it, I think it's quite relevant to, uh, I, might, I might circulate it as a piece because it's quite relevant in, in the context of digital innovation. Frankly, there's a lot of bullshit around about um, uh, the language game associated with, digi- with innovation generally and digital so the rules of language games are similar to the rules of games and saying something actually saying a word in a language is akin to making a move in a game so he saw he saw games as as so foundational that they they underpinned the, the very nature of language and language games and then natural languages are made up of, fam, of a family of language games that resemble one another so that you, you find yourself in in a meeting, and you're discussing something, and you go you go into a particular industry or a particular organisation, and there's there's a, a language game there which isn't really English, and what English has is got a whole collection of, of of language games, and part of I suppose of learning to play a language game is is what is what uh, the business of education is is partly about. So that's Wittgenstein. So to to classify games. So there's competitive games, cooperative games. i played, I was saying to Alan, I played a a, a pandemic last night. It's a cooperative game, a very good game. Um, There's games of deception, games of chance, right? There's physical games, there's virtual games, there's business games, there's car games, board games, car games, um, et cetera. So Calloy, Roger Calloy, uh, another writer, he wrote this book, Man Playing Games. He presented... uh, four types of play so his classification was four types so he has competitive games like say football be tennis chess uh that's agon uh games of chance so lotteries um uh, draws etc things like that alea uh games of simulation which would be theater uh, role play um drama uh their games mimicry and then Illinix, vertical, which begins like that, um, which are some kind of whirring or, or uh, say a merry-go-round or going on a roller coaster or things like that, where where there's some kind of um, movement, se- severe movement. Another distinction that he had was our continuum. He has that there's a play continuum between padia, which are active, tumultuous, exuberant, spontaneous games, and then ludus which is games that are very calculated, contrived, and where rules are very important. So, so and this, is, this was a point around gamification, is do you, do you have, is play organized? Is it contrived? Or is it something that is more um, emergent or tumultuous or just spontaneous? Uh, do you have organized play or do you have disorganized play? So this is um, Calloy's um, continuum between Padia and Ludus. So again, just to go back, I asked what is a game? And here, these were some of the other uh, definitions. A game is an artificially created scenario in which the player is not bound to act according to real world principles. And that was just an introduction for, for Bernard Suits. Um, and he wrote, he wrote a famous book called The Grasshopper. And, and his step, he, he said at the start, he says, I don't believe in Wittgenstein saying you can't define a game. And he went through a lot of uh, analysis and conversations in his book. It's a nice little book. Um, and he defined a game as the voluntary attempt to overcome unnecessary obstacles. So he says, oh, I can actually define a game. And I think myself that by defining it this way, he gets himself into a few knots, but that's his definition. Um, so that uh, you, you play golf and you, you create some unnecessary obstacles like that, certain rules that you, you can't just drop the ball in the hole. You have to hit the ball with the stick to get into the hole. So it's a voluntary attempt. And there's, there's a key issue is, our games do games have to be voluntary so for him, playing games is a central part of the ideal of human existence, so games belong at the heart of any vision of utopia so if, if and this is again is interesting in, in if you're going to get uh, all sorts of machines to do work do, if you have a, a form a vision of utopia where we wouldn't need to work, what would we do so suits would say, well we'd play games that's what we do so. And he calls it a grasshopper because it's, a, it's a, a direct reference to Aesop's fable about the grasshopper and the ant. So he has a conversation between the grasshopper and the ant. And for him, you see the grasshopper, who is the player, and the ant is the worker. Um, the grasshopper is the, is, has got the right uh, idea, while the ant has got the wrong idea. So it's a twist on Aesop's fable. And Aesop's fable is typically interpreted as advocating the virtue of hard work. But uh, Suits would say, no, 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 actually, uh, the grasshopper has the right idea because play is all important and games are all important. So the subtitle is Games, Life and Utopia. One could be playing a game, but not at play. So this is from Suits, I suppose. Suits would would argue that, say, a professional sports person. So if you're you're a professional footballer, you're playing football, but you're not at play because you're actually at work. Um, So most people seem to agree with that. Is that um, if you're playing, you could be playing a game, but not at play in the sense that that um, that the tradition of people who talk about play would would and particularly suits suits would would uh, strongly agree with with that point of view. So moving on, um, so I wanted to talk um, moving towards the latter part of the 20th century, and what developed was what you might call a culture of fun. So in the 1980s. Within, within management and organisational studies, there developed quite an interest in organisational culture. That partly came because um, you had companies, particularly American companies, were internationalising. And you had an American company, say, going to Hungary and saying, the Hungarians are a bit different to the Americans. we better find out what something about organi- the culture, uh, Hungarian culture. So... So you had this interest in, in culture generally. You've, you had uh, an interest in anthropology as a discipline, um, and a general theoretical interest, a lot of writing about, about culture and organizational culture, the nature of, of an organization as a culture. If you remember, I might have mentioned Garrett Morgan's uh, images of organization. And one of, his, one of his metaphors is the organization as culture. And that then by the 90s, maybe even earlier, you got a lot of practical initiatives to build the organisational culture. And you got a big consulting boom saying consultants coming in, and this is where people would, would say that they're bullshitters, but consultants coming in and saying, we, we have a whole set of tricks for you to develop a stronger organisational culture. And part of that was, was a kind of a culture of fun that de- developed in, by the, the, well into the 90s and the last 20 years. So informal dress, parties, football. Joking, playfulness, frivolity, games—all of the stuff from life. So, and and this would have been, so. This would be very opposite to kind of what Henry Ford would be saying. We we're going to bring a lot of play into work, and and people who were looking at strong cultures, they started looking at tribes, at cults, at fans of sports, um, clubs where people were very passionate about um, about their, their 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 football, for example. So, so Bill Shankly famous said that people said it to me that sport is a matter of football is a matter of life and death. And he says, I don't agree with that at all. It's actually way more important than that. So, so sports people, people, people in organisations said we could, if we could people as committed to organisation as people are committed to Liverpool Football Club, we'd be able to do anything and everything there, um, uh, with a culture of fun. So, so Sites of Strong Culture became, became the template for organisation culture um, so so i asked you managers should make work fun for workers now henry ford would would have strongly disagreed with this right but you you broadly speaking you agree that that's, it's a responsibility of managers to make work fun for workers now other people which i i was a bit surprised here that there was nobody disagreed with this but that's this is the culture of fun that managers should make work fun for workers. And then gamification uh, emerged as a kind of the latest step in this uh, culture as fun. And gamification, so I put a little uh, definition of it, the use of game design elements, points, badges, uh, leaderboards, performance graphs, meaningful stories, avatars and teammates in non-game contexts. So where did gamification come from? In some senses, gamification comes from a neoliberal uh, philosophy, which is that humans are essentially a form of capital and you invest in yourself and you win, somebody else loses, you you accumulate assets, you are who I am and I go out into the market and I'm going to... uh, So it's a highly individualized uh, philosophy. So it's a philosophy of individualization. That's very consistent with a, a, a neoliberal tradition and consistent with, the, with a human capital perspective on, on the individual. Tied to that, you had organisations deciding to outsource, from, even from the 80s, um, organisations were outsourcing and they're saying, look, the organisation isn't that important. So, unlike the, so why put all this effort into getting uh, uh, an organisational culture? Let's just outsource the organization. Let's hollow out the organization. Let's create a network of self employed individuals. um, And let's use gaming as a way of managing uh, this network of self employed individuals. Allied to that, you had since, I suppose, around 2000 a big rise in the gaming culture. You had a big rise in video games. You had um, board games. So you get this kind of ludic society has developed very much in the last 20 years, and that feeds in. So even when, when you have your smartphone, it's set up as a game. So the gig economy, uh, even when you you get you you use uh, my taxi or whatever to get a taxi to come for you, you can see the taxi coming to you almost like a, a video game. So the gig economy is is tied into this um, gaming culture, but it's also tied more broadly into a a neoliberal uh, uh, philosophical uh, position that emphasises individualization and a small organisation. So the emphasis is not on creating an organisational culture, it's creating a gaming system by which you can profit. So in that sense, people have been uh, critical of gamification and gaming cultures because some people would argue that gamification, which is the use of of game design elements in non-game contexts, in a work context, is simply a device to subtly and cynically exploit workers.
0: Thanks, Donika. Uh, that uh, thoughts. Uh, put your hand up, or just go off mic and ask uh, Donika anything you like.
2: So um, there was like a period, and I'm not sure if it was like a fourth time or before that, where um, workers would only get Sunday off for you know uh, church if that was around that time was that him saying that work and play need to be separate basically mean um all work and no play in his mind
1: yeah and actually one of the questions i i, I meant to add into the, say all work and no play makes jack a all boy and agree or disagree with that but i forgot to put that in and, and just by the way i i was up last year i went to see the titanic exhibition up in belfast and it goes through so like belfast was one of the hotbeds of uh industrial revolution I suppose but it was very much that you worked six days a week you got off Sunday it was it was uh it was all work and no play but in some ways before the industrial revolution the distinction between work and play wouldn't have been even helpful so you couldn't have even talked about um that distinction it just didn't exist so I think it's important to to recognize that these distinctions were created so and people would talk about say the division of labor but as equally as important as the division of labour is, I think the labour of division, the work that goes into creating a distinction between work and play and to creating... So, so leisure time, as we know it, it's really really is a kind of a 19th century phenomenon. There wasn't really anything that you could... You couldn't really talk about leisure before the 19th century. It just didn't exist. So And, and, and sometimes I think we'd be, we want to be careful about um, having our categories... Imposed too far back, and that's what—that's why I suppose sometimes like work-life balance is, is difficult, because it assumes that these categories are are meaningful work and life, and that life happens in outside work, and then there's no life in work, and 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 but it, it reinforces a category that maybe isn't isn't of itself a helpful category or one that that works for us anymore. And it's probably not that, because I was listening to an old man on, on Rajan Nagurth there a couple of days ago, and he was talking about when, playing, when he was playing football back in West Kerry. They were, they, they were fishing from, they'd get up at five o'clock in the morning, fish all day, finish at 10, and they fished five days a week, and they played uh, the match sent on Sunday. And people were asking him, well, did you do any training? And he laughed, he says, how could you possibly do training? Like, you're working from about five o'clock in the morning to 10 o'clock in the evening. So, no, he said, no training. He just met for the match on the Sunday. But yeah, it was just, they had a tough. So, um, anyone got any questions or comments?
3: Um, Yeah, for me, I was going to say, isn't the whole belief that um, uh, the value system of Protestantism makes it more economically successful than, for example, Catholicism, since it ignores a lot of other factors, such as... uh, economic viability of geographic position of those people or uh, history of those regions so assuming that protestants are wealthier because i uh, you know their religion tells them to work more kind of ignores the fact that you know can- countries like let's say sweden they used to be very much a backward economic backwater until they went through some economic Reforms and to, today they are rich because of their natural resources rather than, you know, their religious yeah. values. Uh, countries like Netherlands and Germany used to be o- overwhelmingly Catholic, and like those regions were o- also wealthier than average before they became Protestant.
1: Yeah, yeah, that yeah. Good, good point. Um, actually, a, a few years ago, I asked well, a good few years ago, I asked some students just to to. Uh, do some inquiry as to see is there is is is, is Max Weber's thesis, which was a hundred years old, does it, does it hold sway in terms of, of the current situation? And and you could do it fairly easily because you could just you can just take um, countries and you say what is their GDP per capita, which is, could be problematic. And are they roughly are they Protestant or non Protestant? And broadly speaking, it's it holds up as a thesis but it's, one could certainly argue the point like you are arguing it and saying oh no it's to do with natural resources or whatever but um, I, I, I would give it, personally I would give it, I know, and I know I saw another looking at cantons in Switzerland uh, where some of the cantons are predominantly Protestant, some are, are predominantly Catholic and seeing and the question is, is is Max Weber's are they richer cantons or poorer cantons? for the the natural resources are pretty well similar. And again, it provided some uh, strong support for Max Weber's thesis about the the connection between uh, a Protestant work ethic and and wealth creation. But yeah, you could argue argue the point, certainly. And and these kind of very sweeping arguments are are always, I suppose, up for grabs in terms of finding cases that um, are are, uh, anomalies, are, are out of sync with the theory any other questions?
2: I think in China as it's relevant to religion, it's kinda of like in Tang Dynasty and their Chinese tradition religion is a Tao Tao religion and basically from my known is the the doing is like, like just to play all the day, relieve yourself like Living in the mountain and don't do uh, just live by yourself and uh, uh, have a free spirit. Not, don't do that much too much hard working. Just uh, have the basically stuff you need to live, then just uh, watching the birds, the, watching the flowers, and just relief, enjoy your life. So basically, it's kind of like quite different. And, and, and I because my previous work, I read a lot about the history book, and, and basically people in ancient China, people do a lot of non-useful things for funs like play, like just sit by the river and drink the wine from the river. They do this, this kind of rare things for fun, so it's kind of quite different.
1: Okay. And with the grasshopper, the grasshopper model, I suppose. You want yeah. 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 So that's, that's my talk, more or less.
0: Yeah, thanks, Donica. That was an amazing grounding in the philosophy and theories of game and play and fun and enjoyment as a cultural phenomena through the millennia, but more so, I think, problematizing the notion that it's deliberate and contrived games are so integral to human to to humanity and to human nature and our very being so much of it uh, is is innate to uh, what we know already and it's great to hear it given voice and also presented in a sort of grounded manner Thank you for listening to Design Talk The music used is Tired Traveller On The Way Home by Andrew Codeman and Jimmy's Jam from Ampletunes For licence and other information, see the show notes.